This week on Writers Inc. And I'm someone who plots the whole story. I don't like to just dive in cold. I really want to know where I'm going. And so I got on the phone with this um, really great publisher who I'd worked with before, and he said, "All right, you got to figure out the answers to these like four different questions. What do we know? What what does the reader know? When do we find out as the reader what you know as the author? And when do the characters find out what you already know?" So. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Like I knew what I wanted the story to be, but I hadn't thought of that other dimension of like, what do the characters know and what do the readers know, and when do you put the reveals in? And just asking those questions at the beginning of the book also like totally unlocked the story for me. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. It's Jenna Brown. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. So I'm, I'm coming in my office and I, I always lock my door when my daughter's home because she's on spring break right now. And like right before I close the door, I hear my wife yell out, don't let the robot run over the ducks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is how weird my house is. Like I, I've got a robot running around the house. We've got that Astro um, robot and my, my wife just got baby ducks. I think they're my baby, they're probably about a week old, I guess, at this point. Um, but like they're, they're the cutest things ever. She got two of them and apparently they ship them like the day that they hatch. Um, and, and they ship them through like us mail, you know? So like they're in a box with like a little heating pad and, and something that's got, I guess, water or whatever. Um, but I guess right after ducks hatch, they don't eat for a couple of days because they just kind of got their fill on the egg that they were coming out of. Uh, so it's like this little safe period where they can, they can, um, ship them. Um, but like they've taken to my daughters, like my daughter, like put them on the floor and they'll just run and chase her around the house. Like anywhere she goes, like she's, I guess their mama duck. Um, so like, yeah, I just keep they've I, imprinted. Yeah. Ducks yeah. They imprinted. That. Is, that, imprint. is that what it's called? It, it's just, it's funny because I'll see my daughter like whip past my door. And then all of a sudden these two tiny little ducks were like their flippers just flapping and they're just bolt and they're fast, you know, for like a week <laughs> old or whatever. Um, yeah, but I, I live in a, a very weird house. Speaking of weird, and this is a medical question, feel free not to chime in if you don't want to, but if, do you guys have any kind of issues with glucose, like blood sugar? Yeah, I do a little. No. Well, my son is type 1 diabetic, oh, okay. so he has major issues, so I can talk on that a bit. Yes, my A1C level was a little high on my last blood test. It was 6.1, so I got a glucose meter, one of the kind you can, you know, it's basically on, on my arm, and I get real-time readings that pop up on my phone. Um, and it is insanely telling to have something like that, you know, where you can basically eat a meal or drink something and then immediately see what it does to your, your blood glucose. And, and normally I eat fairly healthy, but like today I was in a hurry, so I had Hot Pockets, which like they're in the freezer, like my emergency lunch or dinner or whatever. I had two of those and like my blood glucose went from like 100 to like, I think it was 198 the last time I looked at the the little meter, which is just insane, like this giant spike. But it, it like, it really makes you second guess, you know, like what, what you're eating and drinking, which I guess is the, the purpose of it. But I was just curious if you guys have ever done it. Yeah. yeah. I, I can look right now on my phone and see what my son's Oh, blood there sugar you go. is That's yeah because so so, cool. he's got the cgm too and he's got the pump obviously for the the insulin to keep him controlled right 6.1 is his target but you like if he has like 
chocolate milk or like uh, a freezy. I don't know what you call them. We call them freezies here. <clears throat> yeah. But you just watch the blood sugar just like an icy. spikes and then sometimes it'll dip low. Man. Like it'll do that spike and crash so you can see it in real time and it's, yeah. Have you have you heard of the glucose goddess? I just recently discussed her. She's like a biochemist turned nutritionist and like um, she's done a ton of studies on glucose and like one of the things she says is that if you drink a tablespoon of diluted apple cider vinegar before a meal, like 10 to 30 minutes before a meal that, and she, she's got a book on it and there's all these studies that where it's like the glucose will spike if you don't. And then it's like yeah, considerably less if you drink the apple cider vinegar before. So I've been doing that. I don't know if it's made any difference. I don't that's, have like a monitor. That's really but <laughs> you know, we were talking about COVID and stuff before the call. And uh, I I start taking a shot of apple cider vinegar every morning from that point. I haven't been a sick a day in the past three years since I started. Maybe that's why I don't vinegar. get sick from the COVID. Because they recommend it for me because I have a chronic medical issue that we've probably talked about before with my trachea trying to yeah. kill me by closing up but uh they recommend apple cider vinegar for the anti-inflammatory so yeah i I have never heard of this it's pretty interesting she just there's watch like when you i think she has a website or an instagram page and you can see where it's like you know big spike and she'll do things like you know pasta and like it'll be like and then with the apple cider vinegar it's just like a little bump that's neat i always have it before i have my bowl of ice cream yeah it, anything that tastes good is is going to spike your glucose. <laughs> that's seems, a, that's that seems to be the general, general rule. Of thumb. Try uh, look into JD. Um, look, in, there's a supplement called berberine mm-hmm. that I've I started taking because it's it's kind of like uh, they call it nature's ozempic. Uh, I uh, your results may vary. I'm not a medical doctor, but I've been taking and it's helped a lot with with uh, insulin sensitivity and, and glucose. That's cool. I'm, I want my kid to get Ozempic, but he's too young apparently. So <laughs> one day maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I I just I'm not willing to foot that bill. You know. Oh, like that's, that's a U.S. problem. That's not a here get, problem. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's U, U.S. Flat, uh, first world problems. Right. All right, Kevin. What is in the news? Well, uh, first up, and I know, I know that Christine picked this story just to make me pronounce all the Japanese names. It is true. But ChatGPT helped write this award-winning Japanese novel. Rai Kudan, a 33-year-old, won the prestigious Akutagawa Prize and revealed that her novel Tokyo Sympathy Tower incorporated about 5% of text generated by ChatGPT. The novel was praised as, quote, practically flawless, by the award committee, Kudan has used AI not only for crafting parts of her book, but also as a tool to explore personal subjects she felt unable to share with others, reflecting unexpected AI responses in her protagonist's dialogue. That's very clever. The Akutagawa Prize, uh, aimed at emerging writers, has been looking to diversify its recipients. Kudan's win marks the first time AI-influenced writing has been recognized. Amidst growing concerns over AI and literature, including lawsuits against open AI by authors accusing it of using their works without permission, Kudan plans to continue blending AI with her creativity in future writings. I actually think this is a, I think that's the right use of AI. Uh, maybe not, um, oh, well, she's only using it to help generate dialogue. I don't see a problem with that. But I've been talking about this a lot lately that 
AI is don't use AI as a creative tool, use it as an augmenting tool. Like that's to me, that's the real strength and power of it. Cause everyone who's flocking to these services to upload AI generated books, uh, you know, they're, they're, the books aren't very good. People aren't liking them. They're not selling through, but using it to kind of help augment what you're doing. I think that's yeah. clever. And I think I've talked about this before. I like it when I get stuck because it gets me unstuck. I'm like, oh, I want a scene about this. And it'll write something. And I'm like, that's horrible. But it gets me unstuck. And then I'll write the scene, right? <laughs> so. Right. That's what I tell people. I use it. I use it like a really bad writer's room. Like they're a really crappy writer's room. But I can take what they give me and spin gold. So, what do you, can, can you kind of go into that process a little bit? Because I, I've played with it, and like it literally, like it, it doesn't give me anything that surprises me. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's just you know, almost like a cut and paste out of a fiction encyclopedia or something. And like it, you know, like, oh, and it's bad. Like it's so bad. It's cliched yeah, it's and bad. like overly emotionally dramatic, and it's horrific. Yeah, but I don't know. There's just something about it that I'm like, oh, but I can, maybe it's the structure because it does get structure right. And like, oh, I can kind of see the structure of the scene and then I'll just yeah. write the whole, like, I don't use any of it because it's, it's awful, but well, <laughs> it can't get you unstuck. You know, when you've had conversations with people and they they suggest something in, in, you know, you, you say like, if, especially if it's a good buddy of yours or something like, well, that idea sucks, but that gives me a better idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't want to be a, a jerk to real world people, but you can be a jerk to AI right. with no problems. And I'll, I'll counter, like I'll say, I'll actually hold that conversation and say, look, that was, that's interesting, but it's not a very good, what if we did this? And then the other thing about AI is it's a yes, man. Like it always thinks every idea I give it is the greatest idea of all time, which is great for my <laughs> ego. But then it's, it sort of spits something back at me and we do that back and forth for a while. And I'm the one who's really shaping it, but I'm bouncing that idea off of the AI and it, it helps me kind of carry it through. So do you feel like you're having a conversation with a person? Like, does it no. come? You do? Yeah. I don't. Like I a don't really know. dumb really dumb. Person. But you know what? I was just thinking like yesterday, <laughs> I just sent, uh, my husband is reading my draft. I'm like, I'm stuck here. I don't know. Something needs to come next and I'm not sure it, what it is. Maybe you can help me. And then after I sent him the email, I was like, oh, never mind. I figured it out. Like, <laughs> Just even like in thinking about that, I'm like, I've got it. So I guess it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, that's true. As when you don't have someone to spitball with. Yeah. So what would yeah. you do? Would you take like the, like the first half of that chapter that you did write, drop it into chat GPT and, and, and say, give me the... I, I usually do an outline. I'm like, here's what I'm thinking needs to happen here. Can you help me? Yeah. Like what, what? And then it'll give you something horrible, but I won't use any of it. <laughs> Yeah, I just explain it the way I would explain it to somebody maybe that I know doesn't read my stuff. You know, uh, just kind of. I don't. I don't give it the chapter. I don't bother with that. I don't drop any of my writing into AI. I call that paranoia. But <laughs> yeah, well, that it doesn't bother me. I, for some reason, it doesn't bother me. But I, I don't think anyone's going to steal it uh, or or leak it or any of that per se. Maybe they are. Maybe I'm a fool. But I, it doesn't feel productive to me to do that. I, I, instead. It helps my process. It helps me to explain it. And then when the AI gives me whatever weird response it has, uh, it, it, it's like it just kind of jars it loose for me. And it, I, I can just yeah, run with, same. you know, I can run with it from there. I don't use anything the AI gives me in the writing. 
I mean, not a word. You know what I think is really happening here? I, I think Kevin is dumping his ideas into ChatGPT, and ChatGPT is sending those ideas over to Christine, and she's thinking that it's coming out of ChatGPT. And I like this That's is the happening. worst thing I've ever yeah. seen. And you're, you're you're kicking it back, and it's going to Jenna, who's probably just ignoring it. And I, I guess the closest thing I do to this in in my yeah. life because I just I, I haven't been able to just buy into it. I've tried it. I played with it a ton, but I just can't seem to get it to be useful to me. Um, so if I get stuck on a chapter, I'll just I'll force myself to type what I think comes next, even if it's complete garbage. But I just I keep my my fingers moving. I keep my brain moving. Um, you know, I'll type a paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, and I may you know delete it all together if I come up with a different way to go. Or a lot of times I'll just put in some white space. I'll just you know click right above it and just drop it down. Um, type another idea right above it. I just kind of keep going in that circular motion through the chapter until I land on something that works and just kind of keep going. So I, I guess in my way, I'm forcing my brain to think about, you know, what, what I should do next. And you guys are kind of going through that same exercise, but yeah. you're, you know, you're way getting chat GPT to weigh in on, on what comes. Yeah. Through. I think it serves the same function. Yeah. Like it's just, um, a creative unblocking, right? It's, like it's no use other than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause my wife will no longer talk to me about the books. So <laughs> Those damn restraining orders. <laughs> we can talk to each other, Kevin, when we get stuck, so we don't have to go to the yeah. AI. <laughs> That's what we'll do. All right. Please That's tell me we'll your do. next story is not AI. Yes. So new Lee and Low Diversity Baseline Survey finds minor changes. Uh, the Diversity Baseline Survey by Lee and Low Books indicates a small but positive shift in the racial diversity of the publishing industry since 2015, with white respondents decreasing from 79% to 72.5%. Uh, is that a decrease or is everyone else increasing? That's what I really want to know. Uh, the survey highlights significant growth in biracial, multiracial representation, rising to 8.3% in 2023 from 3% in 2019, and a stable presence of black and Asian respondents within the industry. A broader participant pool for the survey might have influenced these changes, along with a potential shift in hiring practices aimed at enhancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Gender diversity in publishing remains predominantly women, though the survey noted a slight decrease in this in their representation. There's a call for publishers to be inclusive of gender fluid, non-binary, and gender queer stories, reflecting the small but present demographic in the industry. The rate of disabled individuals in the industry has increased to 16.5% in 2023 from 11% in 2019, indicating progress toward inclusivity. And progress is good. But I do have that yeah. question, by the way. Slow gains, but better than no gains. <laughs> yeah. is it, it? But I do want to know, though, is it actually that white respondents are decreasing from that 79 to 72.5%? Or is it just that, or is it more accurate to say that other races are increasing and it's reduced that percentage? That's a good question. Since I didn't read the article. I don't know. I don't, they know. Didn't, I don't think it covered that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because one would be bad, I think. The, the, a decrease is bad, I, I, my personal opinion. Uh, but increases are good. So if it's that we're gaining more diversity, that's good. But if we're gaining that in the, at the cost of losing a group, even regardless of how you may feel about this topic, but if you're losing one group in, in order to uh, inflate the numbers of another, that to me seems like a, a, a bad direction. 
I want to see everybody. I want to see more stats. Like whenever I see stats, I want to create a spreadsheet and like add more numbers to it. Um, so like I, I'm looking at this and like this is the industry. So I'm wondering if this is in parallel with like the buying public. So if you were to take the books that are being bought and sold um, over the course of a year, like are these changes identical or on, on par or basically tracking with with the industry? Um, so as diversity increases in the publishing, you know, the people that are hired, like, are we seeing that same diversity increase in the, the books that are coming out and the books that are being bought? Um, that just makes me curious, like where, where, if it's playing through, I guess, all the way. Yeah. I'd also like to know how, how much influence this has over buying habits. Like, you know, are people buying more books because they're increasing the diversity? Like that, that, that's a question that needs to be explored. Um, because I, you know, frankly, I don't know the race, and and sometimes don't even know the gender of the of the authors I buy. I, I, I mean, I'm buying titles, uh, people recommend to me or whatever. I don't always know who wrote it until I've bought it. So uh, I'm not I, necessarily. Yeah. I think a that might be uh, somewhat genre dependent too. Maybe not, but I read a lot of fantasy, and when I started reading fantasy, it was very Eurocentric Western fantasy, and it's not like that now. Uh, lots of different cultures, lots of different uh, sexual orientations. Um, so I am definitely seeing my reading diversify from a very white Western perspective. Yeah, yeah, I would I agree with that, and I think. I do think it's um, important because whether you pay attention to it or not, I do think like it just bleeds into your reading. Like you said, Christine, like you just, you know, end up picking up a book and you're now reading a different type of fantasy. You're reading, um, you know, like Shannon Chakraborty, she just wrote um, The Adventures of Amina. Amina. Oh, I don't. um, What is it? Amina Al Sarafi, and you know it's, it's a TV pirate don't, fantasy don't book, it. but it's—I'm <laughs> not going to, you know. But instead of that typical Blackbeard Caribbean piracy, we get a whole new exposure to piracy, and um, you know, I think that whether you seek that out or not, the fact that it's there and available um, is good, and I think that people will pick it up. Um, intentionally sometimes unintentionally but i think that you can't help but then be you know exposed to something and then you might think like oh i didn't realize that there were pirates in the you know what in in the indian sea and and so then it just helps you grow and then maybe you seek other things and i think that's a i think you're absolutely right and that to me that's the that's the whole point right like that's we're gaining a new perspective and it it really it's almost like we need to do sort of a Pepsi challenge on the whole thing. Like I almost don't <laughs> want to know any demographic information about the writer that I'm reading. I want, I want an, I want a good story. I want something that moves me and influences me. And I don't want to have to care or consider what their, their demographic background is. I, I want to come out of that changed, but not necessarily because, Oh, well I just yeah. read this black gay female author, whatever. I don't want that to be the thing that, you know, I don't want it to be an artificial change. I want to read that and be changed by what I read. That perspective is new to me and I want that to change me. That's the way I feel about it. I do think there's a little bit of value though. And sometimes, um, as a white woman, um, I know that it can be, you know, easy to forget, um, 
growing up, I never had to really, you know, everything I saw was very familiar. And so I, I think with books and literature, I do think that, um, even if people aren't actively seeking it like you, and that's fair and that's valid, but I also think, you know, of, um, of those kids in a bookstore or, you know, watching a show and now they, they see themselves or they recognize, oh, my mom used to tell me that fairy tale. And now it's in this popular fantasy book that everyone's reading. And, um, I think that that's important. And I, I do think that, um, I'm, I'm glad that there is a focus on that because I think it, you know, you never know what that could lead to in the future um, of that particular child or teenager or adult. And yeah, um, so I think sometimes that's yeah, I agree with important. you. I think um, I could go on about the blind taste test all day, but I think that it is important to uh, not do that for various reasons and to have uh, visibility of um, people who whose voices have traditionally been marginalized, but I could go on a diatribe about that for hours. So I will let you go on to the next topic. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Well, instead of that diatribe, let's move to the next story. Uh, Neil Gaiman auctions off items from comic art collection. Author Neil Gaiman will sell a number of items from his personal collection of comics and comic art through a sale at Heritage Auctions. The auction is now open for bidding and will culminate in a live auction on March 14th. Uh, with Gaiman in attendance. A portion of the proceeds will benefit the Hero Initiative, which provides medical and financial assistance to veteran comic creators, writers, and artists in need. Some of the proceeds will go will also go to the Authors League Fund. In addition, Gaiman will share some of the proceeds with the living artists behind each sold item. That's a that's a pretty have cool any of you guys looked at what, what's actually on the, the list yet? Glad to see that. I meant to click through, but I'm I have, and Not it's yet. very yeah. dangerous. <laughs> I have to stay off there because I want to buy stuff. <laughs> I will give you one American dollar for this original Sandman art. <laughs> yeah, and you know that, and like some of them are not bad right now. I'm like, what? This little thing is only twenty five dollars, but you know, on the day, it's I've done auctions before, and what happens is it's insanity to the last second, and the bids go up and up and up. So you kind of have to be willing to drop some cash to get some of those things. Well, that's a tactic, right? I mean, we, we my wife yeah. does it when she's um, selling houses, like you price low because you want to get, you know, a bunch of different bids coming in all at once. You know, like a lot of people are going in there on a certain budget Everyone and they're like, oh, okay, here are the things I can currently afford. And like everybody is looking at those particular things. So when they yeah. ring that bell, you know, hundred people, I'll jump on them all at once. I, I love collecting stuff like this, which is one of the reasons why I haven't clicked on the link um, because <laughs> I, am run, I am running out of shelf space, yeah. but I, I love collectible <laughs> yeah. books. Um, I, I, for me, part of the fun though is, is actually finding them. Like um, we used to go to a ton of garage sales when I was a kid. My wife or my uh, my mom shielded an antique store, um, so we'd go to estate sales, we'd go to garage sales, and she would just buy up random things. And I remember one day she came home with a box of books that she bought, and we were going through them, and we found a, a first edition copy of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in there, um, and it was signed by Arthur Conan Doyle. Wow. Um, and I, you know, and she paid like next to nothing for this this Holy box smile. of books, and like to me, like that that's gold. Um, and I found similar books to that, you know, like in the back of you bookstores you know a lot of times a book comes in and it looks ratty you know like they don't realize quite what it is they just shelf it in alphabetical order um and you know it gets forgotten but like i've picked up a couple of books that are worth substantial money just you know because somebody else didn't realize what they had uh, but that that hunt you know like that that's the fun for it you know part for me like you know f- stumbling into something finding it um 
So auctions are cool, but you know, like it's somebody's already done the the work for you. Yeah, I do. I love going to used bookstores and finding books that are cool. Like that is, I was sharing some with Jenna this week. I found some really <laughs> cool editions uh, that were like um, publishers' copies of illustrated and signed George R. R. Martin. It was like I'm like oh, I want that. Shout out to Don Treader in Ann Arbor. But yeah, I think I the, what I love about this auction is that the benefits are going to writers yeah. and artists in need. So I think that's really awesome. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level, so you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is JD Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com slash JD to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. All right. And with that, JD, who is up this week? This week, we've got Kira Peikoff. She's the author of Mother Knows Best, Living Proof, No Time to Die and Die Again Tomorrow. She has a degree in journalism from New York University and a master in bioethics uh, from Columbia. Her latest novel is called Baby X and Tackles Bioethics. It releases March 5th. This one's a lot of fun. Here she is, Kara Peikoff. All right, Kira Peikoff. Uh, growing up as the daughter of an objectivist scholar and a psychotherapist, in what ways have your parents' professions and philosophies influenced your storytelling and thematic choices in your novels? Oh, okay. Interesting question. I don't know that I've been asked that one before. But reflecting on my childhood, it was very literary. Mm -hmm. I always had books around the house. My dad is the heir to a famous author. Um, my mom is a huge literature fan. And so I was just always brought up with a love of reading and fiction characters. Um, and I'm also an only child. So I always turn to books for companionship. Um, as far as my parents' professions, I don't know that they had a direct impact on that, but rather more the aspect of growing up with a house in a house that truly prized and respected authors and storytelling. That's awesome. And you started a career in journalism. Um, and I can see how how there's sort of this thread with uh, how you grew up and how we move into journalism. What motivated that transition from journalism to fiction writing? And how did that background and all that knowledge that you gained in journalism influence crafting these thrillers and these works? So it, actually, it was the reverse. I first wanted to be a fiction writer and oh. eventually figured out that I could learn how to write by studying journalism. 
but I always wanted to write fiction from the time I was a little kid. I would come home and write stories. I always had ideas for books from like middle school onward, but never truly attempted to write a book. And then when I got to college, I thought I was going to be an English major. I tried a few classes in that and um, it was just not what I was really looking for. I think I wanted to just figure out how to be a good writer and storyteller. So I transitioned into this journalism program at NYU, which was phenomenal. And it was all taught by working journalists who were adjunct professors. And it was all about how to write concisely and directly and engage your readers and get your story out there in a compelling and persuasive way with a lot of evidence behind it and, and elevating different types of voices and, and just meeting all kinds of people. I'll never forget, for example, like one of our assignments for journalism school was to go to Grand Central Station and just observe people mm -hmm. walking by in the train station and like note as many details as you could about the environment and about the characters that you were seeing. And that kind of thing was just such an amazing preparation for being a fiction writer, just to really open your eyes to the world. And then of course, to interview lots of different types of people and hear their stories as well. So I think that there's really no better preparation for a novelist than to work in journalism, which was yeah to do. Yeah. And also, I saw when looking up uh, your your history that you you also delved into bioethics, which it sounds like this aspect of journalism and this observation really, really forked a path, but in like a complementary way. And I'm curious how that that degree in, in bioethics impacts your writing, especially talking about this newest novel, Baby X, and, and how uh, we have some very interesting bioethics uh, immersed in that piece. Yeah, definitely. So it, I didn't really get into science that much until I was in college. I always thought of myself as this writing book person. And they're actually, they shouldn't really be seen as two different things. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really, with my own kids, for example, I don't want to say like, well, you're the language arts person and you're the science person, which I think is a tendency that people have to categorize others that way. And I, and I think it's a false dichotomy. So um, I discovered biotechnology in college when I took a class on the intro to, to biological sciences. And I was just absolutely fascinated by what was possible and the ingenious ways of bringing about these new ways to treat disease and to even enhance people and, and to do all kinds of interesting things through genetics that was really only becoming possible at that time when I went to college um, in the early 2000s. And so after I graduated, I decided to pursue this much a few years after I graduated. I, I wanted to study more about the intersection of science and society. Like, how yeah. will society deal with some of these novel technologies and how should they and who should make those decisions? And like, how will we make sure they're implemented in the right ways, but not, you know, kind of turned off too quickly because of fear, but also not like exploited and given total free reign. So there's just so many questions about it. Um, and it, in, in some ways, it merges my background in like having grown up with a philosopher, with, you know, the novelist in me that wants to really understand like why people are the way they are and why we want the, the things we want. Um, and maybe that's some of the psychology aspect that my mom has, has always, um, you know, done in her career. So bioethics just became my focus once I discovered that this was a real field that exists with a discipline, with, you know, standards and um, a whole text of, of thought behind it. And I was actually one of the first classes to graduate um, Columbia 
which had started a master's in bioethics program a few years before I joined it. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, I couldn't have been exposed to more um, more novel ideas and uh, like intellectual legacy than than I was there. Everything from like neuroscience to law to history, philosophy, it was like very interdisciplinary. And that's actually where, that's a long-winded way of saying, that's where I got the idea for Baby X was in grad school. Um, because that's where I first learned about the technology called IVG that's featured in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just pause there and see if you want to go into that a little bit more. I honestly could go into all of this for forever. Uh, I I have a background in biochemistry and obviously like this, this I'm like, please, please hey, tell me hey. everything that you want to. You can nerd out here. <laughs> I love that. So you're also not like a book or a science person. You're both. Yeah, I'm both, which which when you said that, I was like, you're absolutely correct. I think that there are a lot of us that that really see this this ability to expand on our writing craft within the the science field and and really bring people into that aspect or teach them almost in one way or another. So I that's why I really love Baby X. And and I, I really want to hear more about this IBG because of how it approaches science. Yeah. So IVG, um, for those who haven't heard of it, and um, when I first learned about it about 10 years ago, it was totally off the radar. Like nobody had ever heard of this, basically. And today it's starting to be a little bit talked about more, especially like the last summer and this year, it's been in the news a fair amount. Um, This is a technology that is proven already in mice. Of course, that's a long way from humans. It is not in humans, but in mammals, it's been shown to work that you can take the cells of an animal and through chemical manipulation, turn that mammal cells into either a sperm cell or an egg cell. And the implications of this, if this ever does get to human stage, are truly profound. It would mean that Literally anyone could become a parent biologically. So it doesn't matter how old you are, mm-hmm. what your gender or sex is, what your sexuality is, what your fertility status is. You could get your cells made into a sperm or an egg, and then someone else could do the same, any other person, and you could have them joined in a lab to become an embryo and then implanted either in you know you or your partner or a surrogate, and then you have a biological child. Um, and so I was just like blown away when I heard about this technology um, and that it is, you know, already in the mammal stage, which means it's it's progressing. Of course, it is. I want to stress again, far from being something that is workable in humans, it's tremendously still experimental. And we don't even know if it'll ever actually become a human like clinical stage technology. But the promise is there and the potential is there enough to make us want like want to talk about it and think about it and yeah for me imagine this what it would be like yeah and this is the part of baby x that i feel like is that that bioethics question because you basically create this world where there is a risk that if you are out in public you have the potential of becoming a parent with or without your will, basically. And right. I think that it's really fun finding these emerging technologies and having these 
discussions before they blow up, before they become these big things. So that's how I'm I'm curious how you how this process flows and how you take these scientific themes and you make it into something that's accessible and, and engaging to these readers. So this book took me about four years because I I knew I liked the idea of IVG, but I didn't know what kind of story to tell. And I was kind of um, in this long-term writer's block situation because there were just too many possibilities of where to go, too many possible characters and storylines and impacts of of this being a reality. And I just started to write some like short fiction around it and develop some characters around it. And I just couldn't get into it, honestly. It was a very long process of trying to figure out like, what is the story? What could be a fun and like thrilling, surprising story? Not just like, a, I don't know, like a, a class paper turned into a fictional story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and eventually I hit on this idea of a celebrity right uh, there's something that i learned about in school in, in grad school called the celebrity scenario it was very briefly covered in class and that kept sticking in my mind it was this idea about the bioethics ethicist just like you said are anticipating these consequences and implications and one of them is this worry that celebrities who are very highly desirable for whatever reason their intellect intellect their looks their talents could be targeted for their DNA and sometimes without even them knowing because you without realizing it you leave your DNA all over the place I mean if you mm-hmm. you know wipe your nose there's there's like epithelial cells from your mucus if you sip some water there's saliva on the cup your fork I mean if you are at a restaurant and you toss your napkin in the trash it's still got some cells on it and the cells don't die immediately. So if somebody with the right kind of toolbox comes in and wants to preserve those cells, it's there for the taking. And I actually looked into the legal gray zone right now. There's no law against taking someone's trash that they discarded in public because it's just stuff they left behind. So you're not actually like violating someone's privacy necessarily or someone's property if they left something. So it's a total gray zone that has no law around it right now. Um, and so the celebrity scenario could really blow up in crazy ways if this this baby aspect were possible. And that's when I started to think about, OK, maybe that's the way into the story because that's super high stakes. And then um, it helped me figure out how to how to position BBX. And so the story is about a famous singer who's going on tour and he's been blackmailed by this. Uh, organization, this shadowy organization that collects celebrity DNA in kind of very unobtrusive ways and then sells it on a black market like eBay to the highest bidder. And then there's these parents who are incentivized because they want the best possible future for their kids. And everything is super competitive now because we've amped up the, the possibilities here. So there's this thriving black market for celebrity DNA and and their sperm or egg cells. So this story centers around this guy who's a, a famous singer going on tour and has to protect himself. So he hires this woman who started a new business, kind of an entrepreneur in this new space, as a biosecurity guard who will kind of go around and clean up all of his trace DNA everywhere wherever Mm -hmm. he is and he's going on a big international tour 
So that's uh, kind of the premise where I started. Yeah. Yeah, that was it was a really uh enjoyable read. And um yeah, I just I, I could geek out about all of this stuff. But uh I do want to talk a little bit about some of the um process in writing. And you had mentioned that you had this sort of like writer's block. And uh, you still you you found a way to balance these writing academic your career in biotech. What are these strategies that you put in place that helped you manage your time and and maintain that productivity to get this book finished? Yeah, great question. This was an extraordinarily difficult book to finish. For one, I was stuck in writer's block for a long time, I think for a number of months. And I kept trying to go back and figure out new angles and new storylines and new characters. And nothing just really felt right to me. I even started a draft of something that I just gave up on because I knew it wasn't really right. And so there was a long period where I wasn't sure where to go. And then COVID hit and I stopped writing for like almost a year because because it was COVID and everything kind of blew up that year in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew I still wanted to go back to that story. And my agent was the one, I have to really give her a lot of credit. Um, my agent, Erica Silverman at Trident, she said to me in 2021, she's like, I know you have something there. I know there's an idea in, in there, but you have to go back and figure out what it is because I don't want you to give up on this. Um, this was like two years after I first started trying to write this book. And I finally went back and I thought of a new character to add into the storyline, um, which is in the book now. And it kind of unlocked the whole thing for me. So as far as a concrete strategy for other writers, I don't know if it's just some lucky mixture of like time passing, coming back with fresh eyes, trying different perspectives and not being totally married to everything you've already done. Like you have to be willing to sacrifice some of your earlier attempts to get towards the gold um, because that's usually usually the best ideas are not the first three or five or even seven. Maybe they're like the ninth or 10th idea. And you just have to get through that kind of arduous process of throwing things out and then like trying again and being fine with failure and just kind of being like, that's part of it. It's not a waste of your time. It's just part of it until you get to the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sounds too like having that person or people around you that really are are kind of cheering you on uh is is definitely a thing and that's one of my my personal gripes is that writing is not something that you do solitary you have these cheerleaders or these people around you because i feel like you always need that type of encouragement otherwise you're just shouting into the void half the time <laughs> oh yeah to find someone who who's a trusted mentor or even just a writing partner who can give you honest feedback in this case i also had a really wonderful um publisher who got on the phone with me before i started the draft but i had the idea i figured out at, at finally i was like okay here's the outline i generally want to have and the basic story, but I don't really know where the, where to start. I know what the story should be, but like, what's what's chapter one? And where do we go from there? How do we get into it? And that also is a really hard thing to do at the beginning of a book. I think that's like the next hardest thing to figure out. Um, and I'm someone who plots the whole story. I don't like to just dive in cold. I really want to know where I'm going. And so I got on the phone with this um, really great publisher who I'd worked with before, and he said, all right, you got to figure out the answers to these like four different questions. Um, mm. What do we know? What what does the reader know? When do we find out as the reader what you know as the author? And when do the characters find out what you already know? So 
I hadn't really thought of it that way. Like I knew what I wanted the story to be, but I hadn't thought of that other dimension of like, what do the characters know and what do the readers know? And when do you put the reveals in? And just asking those questions at the beginning of the book also like totally unlocked the story for me. If I hadn't had that one conversation with that publisher, I think I would probably still be struggling with where do I start the book? Yeah, yeah. I I love those questions. Those are really good ones that I'm going to write down later. <laughs> but uh, But you did mention that you're an outliner. And I know that it took some time to kind of to delve into what IBG is and and really understand that. But I'm curious from a, a standpoint as someone who's a plotter, like what was the level of research that you gathered for this? Where did you tell yourself to stop for this? Um, and then how was that outlining process? So this book, while it hinges on this scientific idea, is not really a science thriller. It's yeah. more like that's in the background. That's out there, but here are the characters' lives that are impacted. So I wouldn't say that I had to do a ton of research. I did do some research for sure. Um, I actually, I'm a reporter by nature, so I reached out to a professor at Stanford who's an expert in this technology, interviewed him about it, asked him some specific questions about how to pull off things like this, you know, black market and, and like this whole underground, you know, illegal group, how would they get away with it? And what, like, how would they store things? And um, I just I think he found me very entertaining because he's like this very serious professor and deals with real things like law and <laughs> teaches genetics. And here I am asking him, like, you know, how long do the cells stay alive for the bad guys to like get away with the the theft? Um, and he enjoyed answering the questions and and figuring out where we could put in a little bit of like literary license, but also have it grounded in fact. Um, so the research part was not that difficult. It was more the outlining that I found really challenging because there's three characters that switch perspectives. Um, and I know a lot of your listeners are writers themselves. And I just really want to highly recommend this software that I used. It's the first first book I ever used it on called Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yep. Yep. That's a it's a good one. I used that for this book. And I think that absolutely saved me because it helped me keep straight the three different points of view and the timelines. And um, they, it, it takes you on this process of like starting from, okay, write your book out in a sentence. Now expand it to a paragraph. This is before you outline. Now tell the story in like a page and it gives you different prompts to expand and expand and get more and more detail about how you see the whole story playing out. And then once you have like, I don't know, I think it was like three or four pages of summary that you expanded from that sentence, then it takes you to, okay, now let's start figuring out the outline by chapter. Um, and it has this beautiful layout to figure out how to go back and forth and see it all in one in one view. And uh, I just really love that, that software. I would always use it again. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so normally I would ask what advice you'd have for writers, but I think that was really good advice. And I think what I really want to do is subvert that question to something you had mentioned, which was using your your journalistic background, you reached out to professors and talked to them. So as a journalist looking at aspiring authors, what is a piece of advice that you could provide authors in their research or in their development that could help them uh, either communicate to other people or to really use a tool that they may not think about? I would say, and I've done this for 
I think all of my books now, it really depends what your genre is and if you need to do research or speak with experts. But if you do, don't hesitate to write that cold email. I think a lot of us are intimidated by that. And it's something I had to get over when I went to journalism school, just to talk to strangers and put yourself out there and ask for somebody's time, which feels like a really big ask. But your writing is important. You're telling a story. You have something to say. You should believe in yourself and just put it out there. And in my experience, you know, and I'm not a big famous author, but almost everybody gets back and says, sure, I'll tell you about my expertise. And they're, they're happy to be asked about it. They're happy to be included. Um, so I would definitely recommend just not being shy and going for that information that you really need. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, your time and I appreciate it. Of course. It was a pleasure to talk to you. So I have to ask, did your parents influence your writing? <laughs> My parents? Define influence. <laughs> You can take that any way you like. The, the influence I got from my parents was uh, get a job in the corporate world that don't <laughs> you can't make a living as a writer. That's a that's a fun hobby. It's cute, but yeah, you need you need a desk job. Um, so you know the answer the answer there would be no. I mean, we we didn't have a TV in the house when I was younger. Um, we went to the library a lot, and I do credit my my mom for that. You know, like if I hadn't gone to the library as much as I did as a young kid, um, you know, just like we were just talking about earlier, just discovering books. Like the library to me is very similar to that. You know, browsing a shelf and finding some title that I haven't seen before. Or, you know, it's got a cool cover, a cool description. Like there's, there's a lot of fun in that. And like, I, I still remember doing that as a, as a kid. So from an influence standpoint, there was that. I will, I will say that everybody supported me in writing, especially my grandmother who, uh, she actually paid for, at the time it was called writer's digest school. Now I think it's like writer's digest Institute or something, but she put me through that little mail-in program, uh, at an early, you know, early in like high school or something. And, uh, so I did get that support, but I can't, no one in my family was a writer. So I didn't get that kind of influence. Everybody read, we all read, but then it wasn't even as, I don't even think as prolific as, as what some of you guys had growing up. Like my grandfather read a lot of like Louis L'Amour books and my mom would read things, but I didn't really have like that daily influence of seeing people read in my household either. That was just me. I had a lot. My parents were both readers, so I had that and they were very liberal in what they let me read. Um, so I was reading Stephen King at like 10 and nobody thought that was a problem. Um, so I suppose that influenced me yeah. <laughs> in some pretty deep ways. But um, yeah, I mean, they never they never like I, I got a little bit of the like, you can't make a living as a writer. And for a long time, I didn't. But when I made the decision to do it, like it was always like, all right, well. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> I got speed. <laughs> well, I'm just looking at looking around. The the audience can't see it right now, but like we've got our video feeds on so we can see each other and, and all of us have giant bookshelves behind us, except for Christine who's in a dungeon somewhere. Well that's because I'm <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not at right, home. Yeah. But I do have giant bookshelves yeah. at I I have so many bookshelves. I'm like, if we ever move, it's gonna be a yeah. problem. I think we have like eight barristers and like two other three. Yeah. I have at least 12 bookshops in my house. So it, it, it's you, bad. You're not even seeing half of it. Yeah. So I imagine a, ch a child in that environment growing, growing up with, you know, surrounded by books, you know, that's, that's a big thing too. Like we, we didn't have books in the house. Like we borrowed them from the library. We brought them back, but like I had a tiny little bookshelf in my room that had maybe five, six titles on it. Um, then I started buying up Hardy Boys and Nancy Drews and things like that. And I started collecting more, but my parents didn't collect books at all. No, 
My parents were readers. My dad was big into the the like Tolkien, which is how I got into epic fantasy, I guess. And it, he's the sci-fi responsibility, whether that's good or bad, because we had one TV. Remember those days? And if I wanted to watch TV, no, no. it was Star Trek or it was Scientific American Frontiers. It was ever my whatever my dad was watching. But also, I think we've talked about my dad. I'm a preacher's kid, as you know. So my household was very strict. There was no MTV. There was no movies that weren't PG. So of course I gravitated towards horror and heavy metal. So I can also thank my dad for that. So there you go. Uh (laughs) We didn't have any, we didn't have cable until I was in my like twenties. I mean, like I didn't have cable. And so we didn't have any of that either. We had whatever the three least grainy uh, television stations were and uh, whatever was on them at any given time. So that was our, our whole thing. Oh, the good hey, old I, days. Can I shout out real quick, by the way, because uh, there was a big mention of Plotter in this interview. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. Uh, my I was good curious friend Cameron about that. Sutter is the guy. Yeah. So I just want I want to shout out to Cameron. Uh, but Plotter is a, is a great piece of software. I was glad. I mean, I'm I'm a panther, and I still love that software. But I was glad to hear about that. I love Plotter. Plotter is. Um, I just discovered it when I recently discovered that I am a plotter. Um, so in the last year, but, um, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's really great. And I really (laughs) like that it has, you know, a bunch of different templates that you can use. So you can even play around with, um, what kind of story structure you want to use, um, and kind of see what fits, you know, what you're thinking about. And, um, yeah, it's really great. Uh, I think it would even be great too if you had like more than one perspective because you know it it literally creates like a map so you can see where everyone is and what they're doing in the chapters and um it's fantastic. We we should maybe yeah. get him on the show. I I've used it with um co-authors and it's it's a great tool, you know, when you're not in the same room to be able to collaborate yeah. on something. Yeah. There and I just had a chat with him just before this call. I mean just before the show. And they're about to roll out some new stuff, which is going to be pretty exciting. I won't spoil any of it, but uh, yeah, I can definitely. I'll that's your homework. Get we'll him on get the, him show the show to talk about the new features. That'd be awesome. That's my homework. Yeah. How about, um, she was talking about when her publisher talked to her about the who knows what and when. And I was like, oh, that's Robert McKee. Like, I don't know. It's probably other people too. But if you've read Story, which I did a million years ago, he had the the mystery suspense and dramatic irony where, you know, mystery, um, nobody knows anything, reader or character, suspense, they know the same thing. And then the dramatic irony where the reader knows more than the the character. Do you think that about that a lot when you're writing or for me, I'm just more organic. Like I've, I've read so much, I've seen so much story. I understand the structure and I just kind of have a feel for, you know, like this needs to happen now. And, and if I don't include that, like my brain starts to shout at me, like, Hey, you just, um, it's almost like I missed a turn, you know, like, Hey, you got to go back. You missed your, your stop. Um, like I'll get 2000 words beyond it. I have to go back and, and fix it. Um, but yeah, that th- those types of things are huge. Um, you know, especially when you get stuck, a lot of times just taking a step back and just looking at that basic framework, you know, will, will help jog your, your mind and help you get over to the, you know, whatever comes next. I, I like those, uh, silos though. I mean, I like the division, the way that was split up. Yeah. Well, I just think sometimes it's always really interesting how like, you know, there's so much out there about story and about writing. And sometimes it, what gets you going comes from surprising places. So, you know, it's not that, those questions were necessarily like groundbreaking, but I think like as writers, sometimes we forget um, 
sometimes some basic things I think I've I've discovered, at least with me, you know, it's like you get so in the weeds and you get stuck and like sometimes you're just talking to someone and they'll say something and it's, you know, very, very, very basic and you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> I I should think about that. You're right. Yeah. And then it it helps unlock you. Yeah. It's funny like when you're critiquing someone else's work too and you're like, you didn't do this and this. And then right. you think about your own work and you're like, oh, oh yeah. Go back I, I know. Critiquing that. is, yeah, that's actually I think one of the most helpful things for me is actually reading something and then being able to to look at that critically um, and then be like, oh, oh, <laughs> I need to do that. <laughs> Have you ever had um, possibility paralysis like she talked about? Just so many possibilities for the stories you couldn't really get going on it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I uh, there's a so a lot of my stories revolve around sort of like a key. A lot of my archaeological thrillers will revolve around like some key piece of history or uh, some piece, archaeological find or something. And um, a lot of times, what will happen for me is like, okay, there's this treasure, and this treasure can do this or reveals this or whatever, and then it's like this this myriad of like a multiverse of possibilities from there. And I have to only pick one and that drives me nuts. Cause there's all these other little rabbit trails that I think would be a blast to explore, but I gotta, I gotta, I have to pick and stay it's on the, this one path. It's yeah. choose your own adventure, right? Crazy. Remember those books? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I did it when we were books, talking at, earlier, you know, as far as the way I brainstorm, you know, if I get stuck, let's say I'm halfway through a chapter and I'm not quite sure where I wanted to go. Like I'll write a sentence like this, this could happen next, this could happen next. And it's basically choose your own adventure. And then I'll expand on each of those until one of them kind of, you know, takes flight and, and feels like they're the right way to go. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's important. I think just to keep the brain moving. I think there's, you throw those ideas out there, you know, rather than just walking away, sometimes it, it helps. Yeah. You know, she brought up the, she talked about how, um, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but like sort of like having to throw out a character or throw out like a plot that she's developed or whatever. Have you guys ever yes. had to do that? Like you, I just oh, did yeah. this with, with <laughs> yeah. the book I'm working on now. Like I, I, I threw out, I threw out like half the book and started over because I realized like I need, I need this to go a different way. Like I need to break this up in a different way. I need a different idea. And I've never done that well, before. Did, did you feel hurt, you went yeah. off? You know, like I, yeah. I just mentioned like taking a wrong turn. Like at, at one point, did you feel like you were going off in the wrong direction? And like, did that intensify? Cause it, that's how it feels for me. You know, like I'll, I'll like this, this it, doesn't quite feel right. Yeah. But I'll keep writing it anyway. And I get a couple thousand words in or 10,000 words in. And like, I know I've went the wrong direction. Um, and like, I, I know exactly where that started, you yeah. know, cause I, I look at Scrivener and I can say, well, it, it started here and I, I know what I have to delete, but I, I think your subconscious to a large extent, you know, is, is one, one step ahead of you when it comes to that kind of thing. Like your brain is telling you that something's wrong. It knows where it went wrong. And at some point you just have to agree to it and stop ignoring it. Yeah. I think for me, it was, I was trying to cram in, I had these ideas and I was going to make those ideas fit no matter what. And that's, that's where it all went left turn for me. And that's kind of the problem with outlining too, right? Cause I do that too. I outline yeah. <clears throat> and I won't tell you how many times my beginning and my ending aren't the same as what I've outlined. And I just had that happen not that long ago. It's like, this is really boring, so I'm going to blow something big up. I don't know, but that worked. There you go. The Christine method. This is boring. 
blow something up. Yeah. <laughs> a man at the gun with a gun at the door, right? Isn't that what you do when yeah. something's boring? <laughs> I did an interview yesterday where we were talking about the whole plotter and pantser thing. And what it basically comes down for, to for me is if, you know, if I'm pantsing a novel, I'm using all my brain power to figure out what comes next, you know, what comes next, what comes next. And if you plot out the book ahead of time, you're using that same brain power to figure, you know, not to figure out what comes next, but like how to make what comes next better because you already know what's coming next. So you can, you can tweak it. So I think the outline is a fantastic framework to have, but there, you, know, you shouldn't be married to it on, on any level. Like if you come up with a better idea, which you more than likely will, you know, there's nothing wrong with running with it. Absolutely. So go explode some stuff. Yeah. And on that, <laughs> JD, who is up next week? Next week, we've got Audrey Wilson. Audrey is the Emmy nominated award-winning screenwriter and author of the bestseller Wrong Girl Wrong. Her latest book is called Only Human, and she's going to cover everything for us from query letters to adapting your novel for film and television. You won't want to miss it. Audrey Wilson. Awesome. Sounds great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.